0: Even if women don't want children or are ambivalent about it, they're not given space to have this ambivalence or this uncertainty even because they have to make up their mind, either they want it or not want it, very quickly because they have to convince not just themselves but everybody else about what they want and that we know our minds. It's not like, oh, I'm not sure. You can't say that because that's just like, oh, yeah, of course you're not sure. You're a woman.
1: Be Sharam, maze. Chi Chi Gandhi Jalahata Toba Toba Oho Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. This award winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos, sex, sexuality, periods mental health, menopause, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some inspiring women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. I'm talking to Pragya Agarwal on this episode. Pragya is a behavioral and data scientist, a two-time TEDx speaker, and has appeared on many media platforms. Pragya is the author of three highly acclaimed non-fiction books. I particularly love her book, Motherhood, which is the theme I'm discussing with her. I've read some of Pragya's writing and she has that rare honesty while talking about motherhood, the beautiful bits and the complicated bits. Together, Pragya and I explore some interesting nuances around being a mother. We talk about society's obsession with all women being mothers, and also what motherhood looks like in the world today.
0: I grew up in India, so I was born there in the foothill of Himalayas. My father moved around quite a lot, I'm the eldest of three sisters. And we moved around basically mostly in the north of India. I grew up there, I went to school, I changed schools every three years. So I don't have very clear memories of schools or school friendships that much. And then I came here to do a master's and a PhD as quite a young person. I had my first daughter very, very young. And I've written a little bit about that in my book, Motherhood. And needless to say, it came as a surprise. It wasn't something I'd planned or anticipated. And I've also talked about in the book how I kind of rebelled this, against this idea of try, being a mother and in fact a few of my school friends we had a bed going that I would never have a child and that was seen as such a kind of a revolutionary thing that I'm saying I don't want to ever have children Yeah, and, yeah. and so then I had a child and then I fell in love with her completely and then I became a mother so yeah things don't always happen but sometimes things happen and they're quite nice yeah. and really lovely.
1: Yeah. What are the kind of mothers you saw when you were growing up around you?
0: I saw my mother, of course. That is the model of motherhood I saw and I idolized. She was the mother who was always available. She was um, not working outside the home. So she was there for every need, If even if... We were really spoiled by her at times, because even if in the middle of the night, I remember if I needed a glass of water, I would just call out to my mom and she would bring a glass of water. She was always there, constantly. Um, we were three of us, so I don't know, she had her hands full, really. I saw that mode as kind of a self-sacrificing mode, a person who sacrifices everything about herself to be a mother, to imbibe this role, to be for her children, her children, are home, her family, her husband comes first. Um, she was quite subservient in a lot of ways. I knew she was strong, but she didn't say much and she didn't express a lot of emotions. She didn't get angry and i think that was the notion of womanhood that i was also given that you don't raise your voice you don't get angry women are supposed to be tolerant and patient and and sacrifice and and that's what we do and that's what you do and i saw that and i think most of the role models around me were like that the mothers who were their identity was to be a mother um and that's what i saw growing up i also saw as i grew up not when i was growing up but later on um I saw mothers who were working for other people, obviously, but had left their children behind in the village to work in a place so that they could earn money and send back to them. And that really didn't sit right with me. I also saw mothers who were sending their girls to work for other people in their homes because girls weren't supposed to go to school and they prioritized their boys' education. So in their family and the girls were taken out of school quite young and they were working in other people's home with them and they came with them. And I was really upset about that. And, and, and I think it was really um strange for me to see from a young age how a girl's education wasn't given a priority.
1: So similar to kind of my ideas of motherhood as well. When I was growing up, I grew up in India. So a lot of the things you said really resonate. So it's the mother who's always available. It's the mother whose role is to kind of fulfill the needs of her husband and her children. And almost like she didn't exist as an identity of her own. She was a mother, a figure that kind of slotted into that idea of motherhood, I think.
0: Absolutely. And I think the, all the Bollywood films you saw, we saw growing up were like this yes. ma who was always there. Mother who India. Was yes. Yeah, Mother India, who was patient and tolerant and hardworking and and didn't complain and didn't moan or didn't whinge or do everything like that yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. in fact in those movies the mother was the ultimate kind of self-sacrifice like her whole role in that film was to just sacrifice for other people and be in pain and cry and wail and I don't remember ever seeing when I was growing up certainly I'm sure it's changed now that she was ever like excited or happy or doing anything for herself like her whole purpose of existence was for the children right
0: yeah and and also you saw some like bad mothers and i say that in quote marks because and they were these these bad women who were going out shopping or who weren't always available to their children and who weren't sacrificing themselves and who were putting their needs and who were doing makeup or wearing nice yes. clothes or and we had those as well so they were seen as bad women yes
1: Absolutely. And I think so interesting that you say that. And I guess this stuff we don't even think about. It's so internal, like growing up. And that's kind of like the template of how to be a woman, isn't it? Like it was for me growing up, and I'm sure it was similar for you. And you're like, this is a good woman and this is a bad woman. A good woman is a good mother. A bad woman is a bad mother. And that's kind of, it's so binary, right?
0: It is very binary. And and I, yeah, I know I, I know that I was given more opportunities, especially by my mom, because my mother thought she hadn't had those opportunities and she always realized that being financially independent was kind of a way forward because she didn't have that luxury or the privilege. She was dependent on my father. So she wanted to make sure that her daughters were educated, had a career and were financially independent. That was all she could think of so that at least she wouldn't be dependent, we wouldn't be dependent on a man. But It also conflicted with the other ideas of how to be a good girl and that you're also a good girl and that you're also supposed to fit into this model of how you're going to be a good wife and a good mother. But you still have to work, a lot, like have an independent mind and opinions and all those as well. And I think that conflict is is a good way for her to think of us. But I think it created problems because for me because I didn't know what I was and where I sat and how much I was allowed to express my opinions or how much allo- I was allowed to be independent because there were always these boundaries that were holding me back, these limits that society or her or people or families were imposing. What will people say? You know, those kind of things.
1: I'm really interested, Pragya, in how you went from there because we have similar i think backgrounds to thinking of motherhood like you do now like what was that internal journey
0: yeah <laughs> it's an interesting question i suppose it's not doesn't happen overnight of course um there are all these internalized beliefs that that these bi- beliefs that or stereotypes that we internalize as well and we start believing in them and even though we at some level i knew these are not right this is not what how i want to be you also feel ashamed for thinking like that because you think this is not the right way to be everybody is like that what is wrong with me why can't i fit into this mold there must be something wrong with me that i want more than this right and I think wanting more is not a good thing for a woman because you shouldn't want so much more. You have everything. You have everything. Why Why aren't you happy with what you have? No, no. no. So I suppose it was a gradual journey of learning, breaking these internalized beliefs, finding myself, it sounds like such a cliche, but it's about, I have to I had to unlearn a lot of trauma and pain as well. And I suppose... There were times when I didn't realize that I had undergone all these things because you normalize them, we normalize them as well. We think this is what it is and this is how it's supposed to happen. Don't realize the impact it has on you as a person and how you can pass on some of those internalized pain and trauma to your children as well. And I suppose over time, I've had to really dig deep and reflect on them and sit with that discomfort at times because it's so uncomfortable to think of ourselves like I made this mistake because this happened to me but it's still my responsibility to not be like this and to not pass it on so yeah reading a lot trying to always question and challenge what I'm told I suppose that's always been there since I was a child and one day you realize it's okay to do that it's okay to question and challenge it's actually a good thing And you also realize these are the kind of things I want my children, my daughters to have. Why am I not modeling those behaviors in myself? You know, that also happens at one stage. So it's a a journey.
1: It is. I agree 100%. I made the decision many years ago that I didn't want children. I decided that I liked my life just the way it was, mine as kid's. But to a lot of people, my decision was a difficult one to understand. Mothers are worshipped in my culture, in historic tales and in folklore. Ma is a rallying cry in many Bollywood films, with heroes battling the world for the love of mum. So in that culture, to say that I didn't have kids, didn't want to have kids, was often a tough thing to say. Over the years, I've grown tired of explaining why motherhood just wasn't the right choice for me. The first reaction from people was usually one of pity because they assumed I couldn't have kids. When I'd correct that assumption, there was usually horror at the fact that I hadn't used my body for its intended purpose. And they assured me that I would change my mind. Well, I didn't change my mind. Now, this is a big question, but I guess we, if we start thinking about it, maybe we might get to the answer. Why are we as women still defined by motherhood in 2022? Why is it such a big deal?
0: Yeah, it's a big question, Sagita. But I think it, if you look, the, the we have to look back to where we come from, how these roles of men and women, these kind of gender norms have been defined through history, through scriptures, through ancient philosophy and theories. And I've done a lot of that research for my next book. And I've been look looking at a lot at that about why we are here, what has defined these kind of norms or stereotypes for us these behaviors. So if you look back, there were always these kind of masculine or feminine stereotypes, right? That women are supposed to be a certain way and men are supposed to be a certain way. We also have to acknowledge and realize that men have held power for a very long time. And so the norm becomes the maleness or the man. They also had the power and the privilege to write things, to define things to propagate the theories and philosophy, those are the ones who were outside in the domain talking about these things. There were also these divides set up that women were defined by their domestic domain, and men were defined by their political domain or professional domain. Because men were more rational and logical, they were governed by their brains, while women were governed by their biology, or women were governed by their emotions, and emotions were not as reliable. And so, women were confined to these domestic domains and, and also there is a hint of a benevolent sexism in it because once you say the woman is ruling the domestic domain you make them feel really empowered that they have control or power yes. or something um, that you've got the whole domestic domain to look after why are you complaining but it's not so there is that kind of benevolent there's still sexism a misogyny in it underlying really because women are not free to choose and there are also these stereotypes that have been imposed that women are more nurturing, they're maternal, and they are more organized and all those kind of things, where men are don't have that maternal instinct thing that we hear about again and again, that women have this maternal instinct that every woman's destiny is to be a mother. Every woman's choice is to be a mother. Every woman can only feel fulfilled if they become a mother, because that's what our inherent desire is to be. We are told that. So again, we internalize that belief, but also if we don't internalize that, or if we don't conform to it, we feel ashamed and we feel... There must be something wrong with me or there must be something broken with me because I don't conform to this. So this carries on, this persists. And even as we go into what we think is a very gender equal world, which is not really, um, we are still governed by these stereotypes and tropes. We are still governed by these beliefs that women have this inherent maternal desire, that all women's desire and destiny. Obviously, it's linked to evolutionary thing that all cis women should give Birth and so they will carry on the line and the legacy and have progenies and and their blood and line and everything all that and that's how we survive as a so. That is their value. That is their contribution. That's why we stigmatize menopause so much as well, because once they don't have this value, then they have no purpose really in life, women. So I think we still, we still carry on with that. And I think even when we think we are really gender equal, there is always this pushback to push women back into those roles.
1: And I think obviously within our culture, within South Asian culture, it's a lot more intense. So obviously you're talking about this in in the world, like this is how we've, this is the world we've grown up in and this is why we are here. But South Asian society, is even more so, I think. And some of the things you already touched upon, you know, the people we see growing up around us, the kind of films that we've been surrounded by. Why is it so much more intense in our culture?
0: Maybe it's, um, it's a patriarchal thing that, that patriarchy is so deeply rooted. I've also been really interested in whether we were always like this or whether there's a Victorian influence on our culture in some ways because we were colonized and they brought these values to us or whether Indian society was always so much like this because I do I do think that gender norms were more fluid in India. These gender roles were more fluid. We also had the third gender. We also have all those kind of things. We were working, operating outside these binary divides and there were empowered women, women who were ruling and women were in the political domain. So what happened? Was it because of colonization that the, the Victorians brought these influences and, and set these patriarchal roles into into our society and they became deeply embedded because obviously we still have the hangover of that and we still believe that what happened was often people believe that it was for the good and, and all those, and you know, about colorism and all those things. Yes, hierarchy existed, but I think it was caste-based hierarchy. In, if we look very, very in the past in India and Indian scriptures... Saying that, yes, if you look at Indian scriptures, there is there is misogyny in it yes, as well, yes. quite deeply embedded. There is misogyny in terms of how menstruation was dirty. And if a man came in contact with a woman who was bleeding, they, he would be uh, ostracized or whatever, this kind of stigmatized, and that's really bad for him and all those kind of things. So women's bodies were always seen as, as something that unsightly and there to hide away. So I think it is, it, is, it is a very deeply patriarchal society, isn't it? We still... People mourn. I mean, things have changed quite a lot. And if you watch the films on Netflix, I'm sometimes amazed by like, wow, this is happening in India. Um, But it's still that until very recently, or even in some parts of India, boys are desired, a boy child and girl childs are not desired. And there's celebrations when you have a boy, there's not celebrations and even mourning. Some people mourn when they have a girl child. So from the moment a child is born or even before they're born, these things come into play and a girl is born knowing that they are the second choice.
1: And I guess even if no one says that to us, we know that from the way people around us react to us and whether that's things like menstruation, whether that's, you know, when you're told you've got to hide away in certain households, as we know, you know, even now girls aren't allowed to enter the kitchen or, you know, come into contact with the men in their family when they're menstruating. And even in some families, like you said, in maybe in smaller towns or other parts of South Asia where when a girl is born, that's like a sad thing. It's like, oh, my God, we've got this burden now. Uh, how are we going to find money for her dowry, etc.? Whereas a boy is considered, oh, he's going to bring in money versus a girl is going to take away money, I think, from us. So I suppose that is quite deeply entrenched in a lot of parts of our culture
0: it is yeah i mean there's also this these roles that men are supposed to look after the women that men are stronger they we know violence against women happens and we know that women are more vulnerable women and girls are more vulnerable in that way so parents worry about them so you always you are always told oh a boy, if there's a boy or a man it, it, they they have more freedom because they are not as vulnerable and so they are going to look after you. I know growing up as a as, as three, one of three sisters, people would look at us with pity. It's like, oh, you don't have a brother. What will happen? <laughs> Who's going to look after you? Who's going to marry you off? Who's going to look after your parents when they're older? And so you grew up hating this kind of Message that you're getting all the time, and I used to get so angry, and used to tell my dad, oh, "I am your son." And it's like, um, I didn't realize I didn't have to be his son. I can just be his daughter, but still be the same, you know. But there were these very strong roles against son and daughters. What they were supposed to do? Yes, daughters are married off. They go to other people's house. So from a very young age, they know you belong to somebody. You're not your own person. You belong to your father, or you belong to your husband's family. Who are you as a person? I think those kind of things are big, yeah, changing. Yes, of course, changing. But those things matter about how a person sees themselves as well.
1: And even, I guess, South Asian men's attitudes, because I read this in, in one of the articles you were quoted. And I think about that kind of sense of patriarchy, that kind of sense of men being better than women carries on. I think it starts in childhood where maybe our parents or neighbors or relatives pass on those messages and then Men internalize them and they carry that on, that somehow we as South Asian women are lesser than, you know, whereas the men have a a slightly more, you know, higher social hierarchy. And that continues as well, I think.
0: Yeah, the sense of entitlement. I think a boy is born knowing they were wanted and they desired and that carries a sense of entitlement. So it is the same thing here when we talk about racism or when we talk about whiteness being the norm. It's the same as somebody knowing that they are the majority, that they are the norm, that they are desired and wanted. And so that privilege, that entitlement gives a sense of self-assurance and confidence, the way they're treated, the way I still see in lots of families, boys are not supposed to do any work or chores around the house. And they, they are treated like, almost put on a pedestal and they'd see their women and even their sisters running around and being treated differently. Unless we educate boys and men in a way that they understand that they have a responsibility because of that privilege, that this entitlement they have, they can leverage it to actually create more equal world rather than just seek, sit with their, this entitlement Things are not going to change. And I think some men are doing that. But still, it takes time to get over that sense of that. And and that once men also learn that they are stronger and they have to look after their sisters or other women, they also get the message that they can harm other women as well, that they are stronger, they can overpower them, they can they can inflict violence, they can suppress them, they can get their own way.
1: I see this as well, even with my own kind of extended family, cousins from Kerala, which is supposed to be matrilineal society, but I don't quite know what happened. But, you know, the expectation is that if if there's if there are sort of young boys in the room, and there are women that the boys don't get up and do anything, it's like, they expect the women to bring them things. And this carries on, these are educated, you know, liberal, young men, but I think this kind of conditioning runs so deep that they don't even realize they're doing it. They just do that they just think that's the norm without ever questioning it.
0: Yeah, that's true. And, Sometimes they feel, oh, I can't be the only one doing it or breaking this because I am supposed to be manly and I'm supposed to be the man and so I have to conform to the manly stereotypes as well. But sometimes they don't realize it.
1: Something I wanted to talk about personal to me. So I've chosen not to have children. So early on in my 30s or late 20s, I decided that that's not what I wanted to do. I am still explaining to people why I chose that. What 20 something years later. This assumption that as women, we are all supposed to have children. It's so deeply ingrained. It doesn't matter how liberal somebody is. It doesn't matter whether they're they're from India or grew up in the West. The assumption is you are a woman, therefore you will have a child. It used to really annoy me and then I stopped getting annoyed because how many times are you going to get annoyed? Yes. (laughs) So this idea that we must have children in order to be women fully be a woman Uh, this idea that otherwise we're not really fulfilling our purpose in the world is so deep it always makes me question like no one asks a man that no one goes up to a man and says oh have you had a child if you haven't had a child why did you not have a child where does this come from
0: yeah i'm so sorry you get that sangeeta because it annoys me so much It annoys me because even with children, my worth and my value is not associated to just being a mother. Yes, Yes. I talk about being a mother. And yes, motherhood is a big part of my life, but I'm not just a mother and I'm not being defined by just my children. So if the only thing that people talk to me about is my children, I get annoyed about that as well. And I'm sorry that people are still doing this asking questions because I think there are a few things, as I said before, that the notion that all women have this inherent desire to have children. And so they think that if you're not doing that, then maybe you don't know your mind, that you would change your mind, yeah.
1: That, yeah. Yes. that
0: give it time, you yes. will come around it. Yes. That there's also this notion that women don't know their minds sometimes, you
1: know. Yes, somehow, oh, you put thing. Yeah, you don't really yeah, we we'll let you, you tell. Back.
0: Let me tell you what you think and what you want. What you want? Yes, yeah. exactly. So, <laughs> so they, that's also the perception that you she doesn't really know it. She's too young, or you're just young. You don't know it yet. Or you will want them one day and and maybe it'll be too late by then. And then this creates this panic yes. inside women. Oh, gosh, what yes. if it's too late? And then what am I going to do? So let me start thinking about it. So even if women don't want the, want children or are ambivalent about it, they're not given space to have this ambivalence or this uncertainty even because they have to make up their mind, either they want it or not want it very quickly because they have to convince not just themselves, but all everybody else about what they want and that, We know our minds. It's not like, oh, I'm not sure. You can't say that. You can't say I'm not sure because that's just like, oh, yeah, of course you're not sure. You're a woman. (laughs) So, yes, I think it's linked to those kind of feminine roles that we are expected to play. This notion from a very, I mean, if you look at any culture in history, in their historical documents, if you look at any literature, it's all about women having child, being fulfilled by having children, fulfilling their duty as being mothers and good wives. That's why infertility was so stigmatized. That's why women who are not given birth or don't have children were labeled as like an outsider, or ostracized or stigmatized a lot in many cultures. And we see that in, in the literature that comes from these cultures as well. So yes, I think it's still a shame that we are in 2022 and we're still fixed in these ideas of what a man and woman is, what a man wants, what a man should do and can do and what a woman wants and what can they can do and Yes, men, people don't ask men because their value or their worth or their identity is not linked to fatherhood. Nobody really talks to my husband about their children, his children that much. He, they talk about his professional career. What are you doing? How's your job going? While I'm always just asked about how the children, what, what are they doing at the moment? Even if as I'm a professional, I have a busy professional life. Nobody's interested in <laughs> that. And that annoys me sometimes. So I think it, it harms men as well because... Some men who desire children can't express that desire. Some men who are really committed to having a family can feel like, oh, maybe I can't talk about it openly or maybe I can't talk to people about my children because that's not how I should be or how I'm supposed to be. That's why stay-at-home fathers are still seen as anomalies sometimes. I think these gender roles harm women a lot because obviously we are the minority, we are we don't have equality, gender pay gaps still exist, all those kind of things. But I think anything like this, any these binary divides harm men as much because men are pushed into certain roles and stereotypes as well. It harms everybody, I think this happens. But yeah, it's a shame we're still talking about whether a woman has children or not, and you you saw those oh the Office of National Statistics that put out the data recently the headlines the uh, the panic around falling birth rates and, and the fact that uh, the birth rates in the last fifty years women less than thirty are having even less children now than fifty years ago I mean lots of changed in fifty years. And then I went and looked at all their data sets, there was nothing about men and their reproductive choices. So why aren't you collecting data about men (laughs) and their choices and whether they are choosing to have children or not?
1: Yeah, exactly. Even the data set up to make us feel kind of less than. And I think the idea that somehow by not having children, we are A, not women, really, we're not fulfilling our roles. And the other extreme that I always get is you must hate kids. And I'm like, no, I don't hate kids. I actually think they're really sweet. It's just that that's not what I want to do with my life. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't. And I think kids are wonderful. But it's this assumption. There's there's no like gray area between motherhood and non-motherhood. Mothers all love their kids, live for their kids. People who are not mothers hate children, are anti anything nice and soft.
0: Yeah, our society finds it so easy to do binary. And this, as you say the gray area, the nuances are forgotten and ignored because just our brains can't deal with it. Sometimes it takes more effort to think about. There can be other choices. There can be other permutations and combinations. So it also enforces this, as you say, this perception that mothers love their children all. Yes, we love our children, but we don't enjoy being mothers all the time. There are times when you think, oh my gosh, what have I done? This is not the life I wanted because you're exhausted and you just want to work and you just have no headspace And there are lots of other reasons why you think, oh my gosh, I'm just so tired of this. I wish I I could escape this. This thought occurs to so many people all the time. And in the next moment, you feel guilty. And in the next moment, you know you love them, really. I mean, I know during the lockdown, it became more normalized for people to talk a little bit about how hard it is because we were all in the same boat. We were all homeschooling and parenting, all caring, everybody. So I think... People who had children had or didn't have children had other caring responsibilities. So everybody was juggling a little bit. So it became more normal to talk about, yes, it is hard. We don't enjoy it. And people were talking about it in social media. Before that, I think even when I started writing motherhood, there was always this thing that you had to qualify the statement by saying, but I love them. Even say, it is hard. But I love them. And you couldn't say I couldn't say to anybody, I'm finding it really hard. I couldn't say it because I had to like people would say, Oh, look at them, but they're so adorable. Aren't you lucky? Yes, I know that. But it should be okay to say, it is a hard thing. It is a hard thing that I'm going through at the moment. And and the same with if you don't have children, you have to somehow people have to justify in their heads that there must be a reason why this woman doesn't want children because what could be the reason? It's not because she's an independent person and has opinions and can make life choices because that's not what you're allowed to do. But it's because it's because she doesn't love children. She doesn't have any maternal instinct. And so they have to justify it or reason it in their head somehow.
1: I've spent a lot of time thinking about what family means to me over these past two years. The pandemic forced me to acknowledge that my family didn't exist. No mother, no father. So when everyone was talking about not being able to see family, I had to acknowledge that I didn't have a family. Yes, it made me really sad. But it also got me thinking that, surely, we've all got to redefine the idea of family. It's no longer that image of the 2.5 kids, the massive car and the white picket fence vision that we've been sold. Family could be the pets we adore. Family could be the nephews and nieces that we love to spoil. Family could even be the friends who've become our family. It feels like we need to go away from the narrow vision of family that we've had so far and embrace the big, beautiful world waiting for us to love. Talking about other aspects of motherhood, so women who say cannot have kids and want to have kids, the stigma behind that. I remember growing up in South Asia, you know, like, somebody would talk about ex woman and she's barren and these these even the words were so harsh the language around that was awful can you talk a little bit about that
0: yeah i think as you said the word barren is means that you as a woman as i said because you're supposed to give birth easily you're supposed to be fertile soil you're a mother earth you're supposed to reproduce easily and that's that should happen naturally and without any effort and so when that doesn't happen you are stigmatized. And it was, I mean, again, things are changing a little bit, but i still, I remember even as a child, people, certain women who were either not married or who didn't have children, who were seen as barren, were not allowed to be part of religious ceremonies or to stand as part of like when we used to have those havan and all those things, because they were considered inauspicious and I remember feeling really shocked by that, thinking, "How can you label somebody inauspicious? Why is it like that 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 person is sitting in the other room?" I felt awful about that. And I remember doing, uh, yeah, seeing that so much. And if you read through the scriptures, even Egyptian, South Asian culture, and other other societies as well, yeah, infertility is in Bible as well. Infertility is stigmatized because you're not being a real woman. There's something wrong with you. And I think that's when you, See these messages, and I know there's been some TV programs recently which have dealt with this issue. But the grief of not being able to do what your body does is a very unspoken grief that space in between, where you're not a mother, you want to be a mother, but you cannot be a mother, and you go through these infertility treatments and IVF rounds. And every time there is hope, and every time there is this ray of light, and then it goes away again. This grief is very unspoken. You can't really talk to anybody about it because you think there is something, there's a lot of shame. I mean, I carried a lot of shame and I carried a lot of this burden on myself that I'm not being able to do what I'm supposed, why is it, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just work the way I'm supposed to work? I think, again that we internalize this shame and stigma and silences are created around this shame, which means that people don't tell their stories, don't talk about it. I know that now we are hearing more stories from South Asia and people about infertility, about fertility, about desire to not have children, about all the issues that used to be taboo in the past. But there's still a lot of uh, silence around these and that affects people's mental health and mental health is again something we don't really talk about openly.
1: How are we still measuring a woman's value around her fertility? In traditional South Asian societies, like the one that I grew up in, women were called barren if they couldn't have children. Such an awful word, so harsh. Women who couldn't have kids sometimes banned from attending religious ceremonies, weddings. How cruel can a society be? And what happens here in the West when we grow older, going past our so-called fertile years? The world definitely tells us that younger is better when you're a woman. A man grows more distinguished as he ages. A woman just grows old as she ages isn't this a dreadful double standard I know of many women who feel invisible after a certain age and as I approach my older years I wonder will the world value me less as I age will I be made to feel invisible too
0: Women are infantilized quite a lot as well. So they're treated as girls or they don't know their mind or they're really young and seen as that and not re- taken seriously. So younger women are not taken seriously often. In some circles, they're kind of idolized a little bit as well. So we know in publishing, the younger, the writer, the like, oh, it's such a young writer, debut and all that stuff happens. Under 30 awards, it's a big discussion there. But... <laughs> Then they, they're seen as old quite quickly as well. And as, as we're talking about, after a certain age, they are not again taken seriously. And we see in films and media, there's very few representation from older women. And older, I mean, like over the age of 40. And yes. that is not old.
1: That is um, not old. Yeah. yeah.
0: So over the age of 40, I know some actor friends who start getting like mother roles and like of mother of like adult men who are older than yeah. me. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and they're a bit confused. Like he's older than me and he's playing my son. <laughs> I
1: couldn't possibly have given <laughs> birth to him. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, it's a very narrow window. When, yeah, because yeah, that's their yeah, fertility yeah. window, I yeah. suppose. And yeah. so
1: that's... If we're being told that our value is our kind of fertile years. Yeah. So after those years... Goodbye, you know, is, is the message really. Whether, however we look at it, like we dress it up and we say, oh, this, that or the other, whether it's your actor friends, whether it's creative people, whether it's, I don't know, models, whatever. We're told that past a certain age, you're, you know, you're in your prime is a good word. I don't even know what the word is, but basically go away. You know we don't want you here is, is the message right that's
0: why um we have these terms like um i was confused when i had by was going through fertility cycle i was called a geriatric mother and i was like i am not geriatric i'm not even a <laughs> geriatric <laughs> mother
1: <laughs> <laughs> I
0: realized that actually so over the age of 35 you're called yeah, a geriatric
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. mother Geriatric. exactly exactly Talking. seriously stop it is what i want to say um So I guess the bigger point is that society is always trying to monitor, control, manage women's bodies. And this whole conversation, whether that's menopause, whether that's motherhood, whether that's whatever, are kind of values attached to our bodies via fertility. And if society can find a way to manage and monitor that, then they keep hold of us, really. If we're constantly worrying about whether we're too old, whether we should have babies, not have babies... You know, we're not going to go and protest marches. We might be too, you know, do you know what I mean? So I think it's a way to control. This is my, you know, personal no, belief. Well, what true, do you think?
0: Yeah, it's a really good interpretation because it's the way the patriarchy wins. It's a misogyny's way of keeping us in our place, really. The more we more we struggle against these things, the more we worry about these things, the more we discriminate or get biased against other women, the more conflict that's created between women itself. That's how patriarchy wins.
1: I think you're probably one of the few women that I know that are having these nuanced conversations. It's not like, oh, my God, everything's amazing or everything's awful. You know, you're having an in-between, which is what life is like. It's complex. Could you talk about your own journey of motherhood and what that's like? What, what, How does it feel, the emotions of it?
0: Oh, gosh, it's such a roller coaster. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I became, as I said, I was married before and I was married quite young. I had a child she was very complicated. Pregnancy, I was very young. I didn't really know what I was really. And I was really trapped in this kind of very toxic relationship, coercive kind of family situation dynamic. I was really um, struggling. And I had a child, a girl child, who I realized wasn't desired. Even in such a rich family, they they had very strong views about it. And um, I almost died. I came back from... Um, death I lost five units of blood uh, hemorrhaged all that happened then I realized I don't know it was a really at that time you don't process these emotions you just think I'm alive and I'm okay and I've got a child and she's alive who could have died during that very complicated four months bed rest before then and so you kind of just get through and then I came here to do a master's on a scholarship. And I think that's the first time I kind of stepped, when when you step away from a harmful, toxic situation, sometimes you can see it more clearly and you realize, actually, this is not what I want in my life. This is not how I want my child to be raised in such a situation. She deserves better. She deserves more. So that's the first time I think I felt really empowered. So it, I have talked about it in my book that I think motherhood, that, that first experience was very liberating, but also kind of a, an act of rebellion because it gave me, it made me feel empowered, not just for myself and for her as well, that I'm responsible for this person. I want to raise her outside these kind of traps of patriarchy and misogyny. She deserves better. So we were here and I was an academic. Um, I was a single parent for a while and then I got married again. And We tried to have children again. I was kind of ambivalent about it because people kept saying, oh, you almost died the first time. But I suppose there's always, as I said, ambivalence is hard to manage and talk about because you think time's running out. So I need to make this decision rather quickly. And I didn't realize how much time has already run out because five cycles, nothing happened. It was quite painful, traumatic. We had to make a decision. We had children through surrogacy. They are, they, they, it's a gestational surrogacy. And um, so they're now going to be six years old this year, twin girls. Um, that was also very complicated. There's a lot going on in my life, illnesses and other things, chronic illnesses. So I suppose I was still kind of grappling with this idea of how do I become a mother again? when I'm in a different context and would I love my children the same way like I loved my older daughter and now she was becoming an older teen and almost an adult and I was having these little children so I was a mother to an adult and a mother to small children and I was kind of in between trying to juggle those two roles because you're a very different mother in different life stages. And then my relationship with we were very close with my we were very close. We were very close with my older daughter, but we had some hiccups and and I think I had to step back and reflect on my behaviors, things that I can unlearn, my words, my actions, things I might have done to harm her, things I might had done unintentionally because I didn't know any better, things that she, saw differently than how I saw the story. And you realize there's a situation and there's a story and people see the situation differently in different ways. So I think our relationship also had to evolve from uh, how it used to be. And I think it was good for us. Um, It's really good for us. And I also feel really proud of her that she, and also our relationship, that she was able to say, I want to set these boundaries because I think, I couldn't have done that with my mother to say, I want to set these boundaries with you. And I think that honesty is something I really desire with my children as a mother, that they can tell me honestly about how they're feeling, what they want to do, that I can be there to facilitate things but not impose my desires and wishes on them, that I can show them the path, but ultimately it's their path to
1: choose. That's that's really profound. And I suppose at the end of the day, that's what a mother does right thank you for sharing that what projects have you got coming up
0: <laughs> yeah quite a few
1: like <laughs> no, I, I had a feeling
0: <laughs> yeah. no but actually I'm, I'm taking it slow I, I felt like I was really exhausted and facing burnout and, and I, I to acknowledge that as well I think that's something that I've also realized that with my neurodivergence, I sometimes get so hyper-focused that I don't realize the impact it has having on my mental and physical health and that this period has been really hard for all of us and it's okay to take slow sometimes. I have a book coming out on the 1st of September, which is almost finished. The proofs are ready now, so it's just quite exciting. It's called Hysterical, so it it, it looks into this myth of gendered emotions. Um, Yeah, look forward to the next year and see how it shapes up.
1: I'm excited to hear about your new book as well. I'm sure it's going to be as amazing as the others have been. Thank you so much, Pragya, for being on Masala Podcast. It's been an absolute joy speaking to you.
0: Thank you so much, Sangeeta, for having me. It's such a pleasure to speak with you.
1: I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, to hear inspiring South Asian women challenging patriarchy, a space to be exactly the people we want to be and still feel like we belong in our culture and our community, and ultimately a space where we feel less alone. I'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk or go to my website soulsutras.co.uk I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala podcast was created and presented by me, Sangeeta Pillai produced by Anushka Tate opening music by Sunny Robertson the Bhattamese Gandhi Hi,
0: hi, bad bitty.